I have alternate personalities. Really funny. But what if none of this is real? Where was I when that happened? Snap back to it, man. Snap back to it. Can she just get out of my face? I wanna watch a cartoon! What if I'm not real? The Bag System Podcast returns to the airwaves after a year of hiatus with a special guest, Dr. Jamie Marriage, author of Dissociation Made Simple for an Honest Conversation. This audio was recorded last summer, in the week after institutions made the claim that shame is a required aspect of the dissociative identity disorder experience. While my life has been a whirlwind in more positive ways than not, I'm finding balance, my footing, and my words to meet an old fondness of the show we've built here. If you give us a listen and you want to find out more, you can find us over at thebagsystem.com. The Bag System is the official podcast of Multiplied by One Org, a nonprofit for trauma, all dissociative disorders, and loved ones. Find the link to multipliedbyone.org in the episode description where programs and services include online support groups, a magazine, and a directory of therapists. When you feel that we've earned those stars, consider a moment to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. Good day, good people. I am Jamie Plus. That is who we are in total. We are a multi-part system. We consist of Dr. Jamie Marich, who's the credentialed person that I know a lot of you might want to hear from. We also have the Just Jamie part of us, and the two of us are the ones who largely front and drive this car. And then we have three others on board with us who are chronologically four, nine, and 19, and all of their various and collected parts. And we are so happy to be here. Initial perception of our awareness of dissociative identities and what that sourced from. Was this entirely our own uninfluenced feelings or due to exterior perception? I know that for us, when we received a name for this thing we have, technically it was initially DDNOS. Now we most align with OSDD1, yet we call ourselves a person with dissociative identities because our parts are very distinct. And all we can say is when we got the name for it, our life suddenly made sense to us. And this is the kind of topic or question that I brought up with a lot of people who contributed to Dissociation Made Simple, which is the book that we just wrote and had come out. And and I brought this up as a topic and asked this question. And so many folks responded with, I've just always been this way. We've just always been this way. And then finally, when we got a name for it, our world just suddenly made sense. So I know there's a lot of talk about therapists put systems in place or we create them to have community and attention and all of this. Yet, I think if you really get to talk to people with systems, you will hear similarly that we've always felt this way. And the more people in the DID community and the OSDD community I connect with, there's various stories, various lived experiences shared of how systems form, how systems are identified. And I think all of them make up part of this real beautiful tapestry. Quite valid. As I've noticed, people have been quiet because they haven't felt they had a space to speak. So when they do have a space to speak, 
they still doubt that they can have a space to speak because they've been so quieted and afraid to come forward due to so many stigmas, medical professionals, disbelief. And then they find someone who accepts them as who they are, and the relief can sometimes bring them to tears. And they actually say, you believe me? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I see you. I see you. And that's the kind of validation that can heal a person's soul. Why would that not be the goal? And something professional Dr. Jamie has really learned is that kind of validation is probably the most healing intervention we can give anybody who sees themselves as part of this plural family, this plural rainbow. I think there's such power in saying, I believe you anyway. Yet, to especially hear that, wait, you don't think I'm crazy, you don't think I'm making this up, is, it's powerful. I'm glad you named that. I think that especially those who were diagnosed around the time of the movie Split or like anything negative over the years, the condescension brought down upon our very essence of what we are and how we survived. And the only positive thing about what happened in the past is how we blossomed into something that was actually triumphant and embrace it. But people can't do that unless we're allowed to. We are not included in the equation. It's a hypothesis. I think that if we're seen as real people and valid and not put into shame, mm -hmm. we won't have shame. Because it's interesting, since we're talking about this idea of research and lived experience, that you know, I know when I've rubbed shoulders with and I've read a lot of the research that's out there in DID and the research that went into making tools like the MID, as, as it's commonly known. And there's part of me as I read those research pieces where I'm asking myself, who did you talk to for this research? <laughs> who did you use for this research? Because it's certainly not resonant with people I've met in the DID, OSDD community. I think a big problem in my field with research in general is it's been very limited sample size, very much a lack of diversity in sample size. And even with, if I can start going there, the recent controversy about the McLean Hospital teaching that came out the week prior to us doing this recording, which is an echo of some other leaders in the field of dissociation, bringing up you know, social media as an impetus for people faking their disorders, quote unquote. Even as I've heard some of these scholars talk about the patients that they've treated, my gut level response is, yes, maybe you've only seen the people who still have a great deal of shame about it in your institutions, in the people that you're researching, in the people that even have the privilege to access your kind of institutions like McLean Hospital. Yet, it's clear you've not met more of us, especially those of us who do have a great deal of pride in what it means to be a system. I would agree with that in the sense that especially those samples, if taken from those institutions, were subjected to the shame imposed on them by those institutions. So obviously they were ashamed. I'm with you. Yeah. The motive for hiding our dissociative identities and what that initially was. Yeah. Oh, so it blows so many people's minds when I share with them just how many plural people I've met and have interacted with and how many people have felt, you know, I'm privileged that they feel safe enough with me to come out because the part of this is many of us are good at hiding or good at masking. Many of us, not all of us, but many of us 
have a part that is notorious for fronting like everything's okay. And I know at least in our system, we really learned to use that part very well, very young. That part now lives as Dr. Jamie, but I always say she existed before we had a PhD. Growing up in a home that had a lot of chaos where we were very much the hero child and had to mask very well. So I think that's a reason a lot of us can hide out very long and often do hide out in professions that might blow people's minds, like being doctors, being lawyers, being high-level accountants and whatnot. I think another reason people hide, the big reason people hide is the shame. I mean, I know so many folks who have kept it even from their spouses or partners. I know I didn't even directly disclose it to my first two major partners in my adult life. It was just easier to say, I have complex trauma with a lot of dissociation. And something that my friend, who's become my friend, Alexis, one of the contributors in Dissociation Made Simple and I talk about is this whole issue of when do you drop the DID bomb on people? Because if you lead with it, there can be this sense of because of movies like Split and Sybil, people are going to judge you immediately. So, okay, let people get to know me, let people get to know us. And then if you tell them later, do they feel deceived? So these are just some of the reasons I put out there for discussion. Part of the issue as well is fear, because if we approach someone after they've exteriorly to us been exposed to the negative stigmas of DID, dissociative identities, then we are afraid of how they will react. And it puts us in a position where can we even tell our loved ones, the people in our family that we desperately need to confide in, can we tell them and how will we react and will we lose them? Will they condescend us? Will they not believe us? Will they think we're faking, malingering, munchausens, all the above, because that's what we get. And then that's, that's, again, puts us into a place of shame. So was that really ours? Yeah, no, I don't think that it initially starts with us. If we are accepted to begin with, then ultimately, that's what we may more so feel, which I was quite blessed to have a very good support system and people who are aware and accepting of themselves to help me find my own acceptance. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the most healing thing, not to condescend and think we're gross. You should fix that. Go away. It's dismissive of our entire composition. It's hurtful is the word. Yes. And I'm as you're talking, I'm thinking of a contributor in Dissociation Made Simple who mentioned, yeah, I had a fear that my family would look up their own stuff on the internet and come to a bunch of misjudgments and not want to get to know my experience. And I relate to that very much. I still struggle with how to tell people who aren't in the field. And even when I am talking to other people in my professional field, I don't know what their biases are going in. So yeah, I think even those of us who are very secure with being out, it's still normal to be afraid. What led to self-compassion and acceptance? For me, and I know I am blessed, lucky, the outlier here maybe that I have had two amazing therapists on this journey. I have the hope that one day everyone who has a system can be met with the kind of therapists I've been fortunate to have. The first therapist who diagnosed me, she was my first trauma therapist. I was able to access her through my my insurance at my workplace. And she just got it. She she got it. She 
knew how to adapt trauma therapy in a way that really understood and appreciated dissociation. She was the one who diagnosed us and even gave us some tools to help diagnose us and never, ever made us feel like it was a bad thing. It was something that we did for survival and adaptation. And it's a big, important part of how our minds work. And then years later, I re-engaged formal trauma therapy again when I went through a major situation in 2016. And I was blessed to find another therapist who at that point, I deliberately did more research to make sure that like, I really got lucky the first time I, re- I just went to whomever I was recommended. And my my second therapist who I still see off and on now is somebody who not only gets various forms of trauma therapy, she really understands dissociation, spiritual trauma, which is a big part of my experience, and has always approached my system with extreme compassion. That's a great support system, a great way to absorb something positive instead of absorbing shame. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. My initial reaction without filtering was fear, but not due to anyone else's perception, but just fear of what was going on. I, I wasn't aware before that the weirdness that I dismissed as quirks were actually more than just a quirk. So when I realized that, I was quite frightened, more so than, I mean, I spent a few weeks between the fridge and the stove sitting there, so I wouldn't, you know, wake everyone in the house and freaking out for weeks. I was also not accepted by, you know, my therapist at the time who had never treated DID Mm -hmm. and wouldn't speak to anyone but me. However, what really helped me was others in the plural community who were self-accepting and who let me know, hey, the fact that they are there in your mind matters to what happens to the whole of you. I finally considered the feelings that were in duality with mine, feeling my feelings while feeling their feelings. And I was like, hey, I remember feeling their pain, their hurt at my dismissal of them. I remember this and I felt compassion for them and acceptance. And I've never turned back. I sometimes doubt because, you know, that's part of DID. I think that uninfluenced wise from perception, from being shamed exteriorly or prejudice or like misconceptions, like go out and hash people to pieces. Even if it weren't for that, just the acceptance of those around me and just say, I believe you. That was so healing Uh and all parts were valid. And they're like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. If if Skittle wants to talk, it's okay. (laughs) You know? And, And I thought that was an incredible blessing. And I'm glad you mentioned the importance of community. I mean, something that's just enraging me about some of what I've seen coming out of the McLean talk and some of that (laughs) world that believes similarly is, oh, people present with a DID diagnosis so that they can feel part of a community. And to me, that just shows a big misunderstanding of what community is. Um, I could probably riff a little more on that. Yet I really believe having been part of many different kinds of communities over the years for my addiction recovery, I've been a part of spiritual communities, I've been a part of expressive art communities. We know where we belong. That's to me the real meaning of community. And I shared this in a video response that I recently made about the McLean teaching that as a professional who has long not felt like I fit in with my other professional colleagues, no matter how hard I've tried. And I have found pockets of community, to be clear. 
in professional circles, especially in trying to get to know members of what are often called like the trauma and dissociation establishment, I have never felt as understood, as accepted, or as free to be myself as when I'm with other plurals, whether they're professionals or not. So the not being accepted by institutions who dismiss our value, I'm glad Mm -hmm. because I don't want to be associated with that anyway. So I don't need their approval. Um, you know, we do offer multiplied by one org nonprofits that I slash we founded, uh, support groups, uh, online and, uh, all kinds of community connections that are healing and like, Hey, someone gets me. And Hey, I don't have to explain the context of what I'm saying because you get it too. That's so healing, but Hey, it's not cool to do that. Apparently we're not supposed to connect because why? I don't know any other condition ever gets to connect and that's cool, but why not us? Cause why mm-hmm. it's dismissive. The validity of a goal of functional multiplicity and our perspective of our own wishes dismissed as not acceptable. Yeah, functional multiplicity. I know that's a phrase that that often gets used. I'm still, we're still on the fence about how we really feel about that as a phrase, but I see the point of it. That really for so many of us, integration, fusion, blending, whatever word that can get used in so many therapeutic circles is really not the goal for us. It is about how do we get our systems to cooperate, to communicate? Fusion's a word I don't necessarily struggle with, although I know a lot of people do. And so even there, you know, I'm getting to this point that I make in a lot of my professional writing is when you're working with anyone, especially a system, get a sense of what language is most comfortable and acceptable for them and get a sense of what their goals are. Because yes, there's this big myth that I had hoped we had long shattered, but I still see it popping up and rebranded in a lot more therapeutic circles that we have to integrate. We have to be one presenting core in order to be whole and healthy and, and healed And I know for us, we experience a great deal of wholeness by honoring our, we like plurality more than multiplicity, by honoring the we. And it's it's always interesting, and this ties into our first topic area. We have used we pronouns to refer to ourselves since we were a child. And I remember like people, my parents would correct me or make jokes like, oh, are you referring to the royal we? And for me, that was one of the first pieces of evidence that yeah, we we were we. And I know in 2016, when I went through my my big episode, I had been masking for many, many years at that point with I pronouns. It is just something I had learned how to do. And when we were going through this struggle, we were using we pronouns like that whole year. I remember this moment where, because we vacillate between I and we now, where we caught ourselves and it's like, you know, you, you better be mindful of that and refer to yourself as I. And then it dawned on me, who's that for though? Is that for me or is that for their comfort? And why can't I just speak and go back and forth in a way that feels free and natural for me? And for me, that whole system was just a metaphor for my healing. And what I really want any professional in my circles who might be on the fence about all of this to understand is that when we started reclaiming our we pronouns and 
calling ourselves a system and not trying to hide it or mask it, we actually got better. And for me, that is parallel to so many other types of recovery with pride movements like the addiction community. And I shared this recently in a video that a lot of people who are in recovery from addiction have a great deal of pride about it. Those of us who identify as queer, even though it's not a disorder or a problem, have a great deal of pride about it. So why haven't we stopped to consider that pride in being who we are is a healing force with plurals? Yeah, I feel that the way that we named the organization multiplied by one, anything multiplied by one will always be one. Even though we are many inside, we are one whole. Mm -hmm. One whole. And that is complete. That is not a tragic end result. That is awesome. Because ultimately, if we can work as a system, as we can function day to day, and there are very successful systems out there, very successful systems. I've seen them in our community, brilliant minds, passionately brilliant minds, and they do that together as one whole. So I think that's incredibly valuable and actually honestly beautiful because if someone can respect their mind after something that divided it in some way, it's it's inspiring. And I'm glad for them that they reached that point. And saying it's awful is like saying they should not heal. The first step to self-compassion in my entire life, right, I deeply hated myself, was mm -hmm. knowing there were others in me that I felt compassion for. That's lovely. That's lovely. What can we do to help ourselves and for the community to come together further to create resources? Well, it's interesting because I think like within any community, it's important to highlight not everybody's going to be on the same page. Uh, and I've learned this from being a member of the LGBT community. Different people have different definitions of advocacy, and I don't necessarily feel in community with everyone, and that's okay. But my hope is that we're working towards some common goal here of having our voices be heard and respected. So I am a fan in one way or another of a lot of the existing resources that are out there, including yours, including the Plural Association, System Speak, and Infinite Mind is probably the one I'm closest to and have most connected with. I just love that conference and that work and Jamie Pollock's vision. So yeah, I think a, much of it is to find maybe where community exists. For some of you, it may be on social media. Even though I am on TikTok, that's not been the biggest outlet for me, the social media groups. But I always believe that if you're not finding the exact nuance of what you want in a community, then create one. So, and I'll put this out there as a resource that I've, I have a small Facebook group community specifically for EMDR therapists, which is a form of trauma therapy that I practice who identify as plural and want to talk openly about being plural. So uh, you can reach out to me at my information that I'm sure will be attached to this podcast. We could talk about it and we can get you added to that group because it's very private. It's a, it's a secret group. And we, you know, try to keep it pretty well managed. I know the Plural Association has a lot of amazing subgroups that are developing, including the Refractory by my friend Katie Keach, which is also a space for all plural therapists to come together. There's lots of communities out there. And if you're not finding exactly what you're looking for, then maybe it's your calling and some of your friends' callings to create something small of your own. I know one of the coolest communities I'm a part of is a group thread every morning with 
just three or four of my other plural friends and we make sure that we check in on each other. So it's just some of my feelings about it because community is really, really, really vital for us. Feeling understood, feeling seen. It's valid. So friends, there's a lot of places you can connect with us. The most official website connected to our book, Dissociation Made Simple, is at www.redefinetherapy.com. And that's a place where there's a contact form. You can, you can get to us. There's listings about events we're doing, some freed and some, some free and some paid. And basically every interview I've done in the last year or so is up there connected to the dissociation work. And this one will be up there as well. So please feel free to visit redefinetherapy.com. If you're on Instagram or TikTok, I am trauma therapist rants which is where I post a lot of my witty side of things. I also have another website, traumamadesimple.com, which is a lot of the free resources and skills that I have out there. And my company is instituteforcreativemindfulness.com. 